This is the Accounting Insider Show. So this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, there's no reason to stop. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it. Okay, so sitting down today, we've got Ben Siegman. Ben is a lawyer um, with Australian Unity. Uh, had a chance meeting with Ben. I've got to give you the background on all of that, but just really excited to have you here today. Thanks for coming in, Ben. Mm, thanks, Kip. So we're sitting in my office today. Um, ben, you've come in from your office. We've lined this up, what, four, six weeks ago? Mm, mm. <laughs> for one reason or another, it's been postponed, and delayed, but... We finally get a chance to actually sit face-to-face and have a fireside chat with microphones on. Now, this is totally bizarre the way we met because, and I think that the listeners are going to really appreciate this story because this is um, this is your work, um, you know, just so well done. I couldn't believe it. So what, I will explain the situation and then you can give me your take on it, but you, you are a lawyer in Adelaide who specialises in wills and estates, correct? Yes, um, you took over the vault of 20,000 wills from one of Adelaide's legal practices, which wanted to get out of that uh, sector of the market. Yeah, a little under uh, that, but um, but it was a very large transfer of a deed bank, yeah. Okay. And one of my clients had a will in that vault. So you um, obviously did the research to get our details and wrote to me on behalf of the client to tell us that the will for my client, was now being relocated from their office to your new office. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, because we hadn't touched base, um, you you were unaware that we had redrafted that will with another law firm. So Mm. we were doing, we were out of courtesy just letting you know that, oh, thanks very much, Ben, but thanks for your letter, but we've actually got the will updated with another firm. So most people would have tail between the legs and think, hmm, Okay, no mind, never mind. You know, that relationship is terminated and let's move on with the next one. But that wasn't the case with you. You wrote to us and you said, that's fine, no problems. Um, but let's catch up for a coffee. We mm. specialise in wills and estates. If ever I can help any of your other clients. Or I think you may have even said the magic word, which was something along the lines of, um, would it be okay if I referred? work to you or something along those lines but my ears pricked up and we went out for a coffee Mm. so you turned a situation where you you know you'd lost a client and we we potentially never would have met unless you um did that amazing letter to me um into something which kick-started a new relationship Mm. Yes, you've got to always make lemonades out of lemon, don't you? The um, um, no, so we'd written to every single um, uh, client um, or their advisor um, that had a will with us in the transfer, and obviously um, you receive a lot of rejection letters that um, simply say not at this address anymore. Um, but occasionally um, we would get responses um, from accountants and financial planners, which would say much like you said. Um, that, uh, well, look, what you've got is old and it's out of date. And we knew that was the case because within that transfer of, of documents um, and, and deed packets, there were wills that couldn't possibly belong to living people because they were so old. Um, 
But part of our practice or most of our estate planning work comes to us from accountants and financial planners. And what struck me as important about the way you'd responded to my letter was that you were clearly a proactive and engaged accountant and that you were also a financial planner. So um, you were exactly our key referral demographic and exactly the sort of people we want to deal with. Um, so, um, uh, and I told you that in, in my mm. email mm. to you, I said, oh, thanks, Kim, uh, appreciate that. But um, it's great to see a proactive and engaged accountant and financial planner um, and, and we'd be really happy to work with you. So then one thing led to another. So yeah. then we we caught up for that coffee and I think it was at Whistle and Flute, mm. our choice of restaurant. I think you chose, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you brought two of your staff members along. Yes. Yeah. And then you, and this is no word of a lie, but you blew me away at that coffee with your in-depth knowledge of wills and estates. Oh, thanks, Kim. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not saying that lightly, but I walked out of that and I think Morgan from my office came along and yes. you had brochures prepared, business cards, flyers, everything was just so professional. And it was a really good lesson for me um, in that you – only want to do wills and estates that's the only space of law that you're um, practicing in and you want to be as as best you possibly can in that in that sector Mm, that's right um so i mean i come from a background that involves experience in all sorts of um law so once upon a time i was a commercial um partner in a in a law firm um I'd even dabbled in the early days of my career in crime and family law where most lawyers sort of cut their teeth, uh, debt work. Um, but it, it became apparent to me you know, quite some years ago that the growth industry in law into the future was likely to be estate planning. And the reason that's the growth area for law is because we've got almost a perfect storm of uh, uh, conditions leading to it, it being the growth area. Those um, uh, conditions include uh, the increasing wealth of our population. That's driven largely by superannuation growth. So we talk regularly about something in the order of a $2.4 or $2.8 trillion wealth transfer that'll occur from this generation to the next purely through superannuation. Um, that's never been present before. Uh, the other um, um, condition that's um, part of the perfect storm is the um, uh, the aging population. So there are a few issues um, with that. Um, firstly, what we see, which has never been seen in Australia before, is a large blip in the um, population demographic, which is the baby boomers. Uh, so we have um, a larger number of older people relative to younger taxpayers than we've ever had. And of course, they'll die. Um, they're also the wealthiest um, generation we've ever had. Um, add to that the fact that people are living uh, longer, but not necessarily with full health. So we have an increasing incidence, uh, for instance, of things like dementia, senility, Alzheimer's, things that from a legal perspective we call a loss of capacity. So that means that estate planning needs to become more complex. Um, part of what occurs within that area with um, a lack of capacity is a massive boom in aged care. Um, so we see ways in which people are put into aged care facilities or nursing homes and things that are new and relatively novel and didn't exist you know, 30 years ago. So we see things like uh, accommodation bonds and these become large assets that almost replace houses. So 
estate planning's become really complex, and for that reason, um, it was obvious to me that, well, that's the place to be. Um, previous booms uh, in growth in law in my career had been um, family law really early on, but that never suited me. That that was um, um, something I, I, I really disliked practising in. What was that? Um, family law is, is a field of law where... Um, uh, two people who once loved each other uh, no longer do and then will fight a lot uh, and you'll be embroiled in the middle of it. Um, so you spend as much time being a counsellor to your client as you do uh, their lawyer. Um, it's highly stressful and, and it's it's easy for all of that stress um, to end up um, being partly shared anyway by the lawyer. Um, so you'll generally have a client that's... Um, angry and indeed they tend to go through the normal sort of grieving process when their relationship ends Um, and you'll generally meet them at the point they're dealing with anger Um, and it's not a lot of fun. Um, It it also leaves clients feeling generally um, unhappy and it's probably the worst part of the legal system from from my perspective. Uh, You don't see too many people who've had a divorce and say well that was a really good experience. but um, you know what tends to happen from a practical business perspective um, is two people have a lawyer each, and the lawyers deplete the asset pool in part in payment of their fees. So you have two people who um, had some money together, and by the time everything's finished, they have less money and they're separate. Um, in estate planning, what occurs is we look at the assets people have while they're alive. And we look at ways to maximise the value of what they pass to their spouse or to their children. And so generally we've value added. We've generally added to what they have. We've generally assisted in the passing of wealth and we've assisted in the creation of additional wealth or protections, which means that for our involvement, they're in a better place. Uh, Which means that when I finish with my clients, um, they're usually um, happy or happier Um, They're usually thankful for our involvement. And in a lot of fields of law, that's not the case. Um, In family law, even if you do a great job for your client, um, they've still had a divorce and they still have less money than they um, had at the beginning. Um, So that was was probably uh, why I disliked family law. Okay, I've got a question for you. Mm -hmm. Um, With this tremendous transfer of wealth that we're seeing, and this is the first generation where it's really happened, has that led, in your opinion, to more infighting between siblings? Uh, yes, and, and we know that empirically that's true um, globally. Uh, it's not an Australian phenomenon to see uh, an increasing um, uh, incidence of fighting um, or dispute in relation to the passage of wealth, whether through superannuation uh, or through wills. And it's important to remember that Um, They're actually um, two separate systems that operate side by side, um, the way um, wills pass assets and the way superannuation deals with them in the first instance. Um, But globally that um, is the case. Um, It's often in in various commentaries referred to as a sense of entitlement. Um, uh, it's, It's something that seems to be attributed to a younger generation. So the, um, um, the generation of the children who are currently losing their parents. Um, whether that's a fair description or not, um, I'm a little bit uh, undecided on. It seems a bit harsh, but um, there, there must be a reason why um, people are fighting more and unhappy more than they seem ever to have been. 
Um, certainly one of the reasons that, that that's obvious and makes sense is because the fight's worth more now. So if you look at a generation, say, um, three generations back, when they passed away, they didn't have the wealth that the generations dying now have. And it seems obvious to me that if, uh, if there's not much to fight about, there's not much point in having a fight about it. Um, but if you pass away leaving a very large inheritance, then there's more to fight about. So there's, there's more sense in having well, the fight. Does it typically stem from the fact that mum and dad try to be the, 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 the judge and they try to look at what each child has got and where one is doing really well, they try to overcompensate for the one that's not doing so well? Well, is that where these fights typically start? Well, it, it, you will see fights in that situation. We, we need to look also at the family structures that exist now. Um, so if you go back to um, three or four generations, um, our instance of divorce was lower. Uh, our instance of um, blended families was lower. Um, our instances of older people potentially in care repartnering um, was lower possibly not even there so our social structures and our family structures are more complex than they've been that means our traditional relationships don't look like they used to um, so in the example you've used um, a mum and a dad thinking about which child to benefit more is a is a classic example of what's always been present so you have perhaps three children and you have one child that is um, a, a bit of a wastrel. That's the expression we use in law uh, for some reason. It seems a harsh one, but wastrel. Uh, wastrel. Um, wastrel. So, yeah, so someone who's going to just essentially fritter away their inheritance. Um, the, um, and you might have another child that's done um, um, really well for themselves, um, very well off, and perhaps has less need. So we know that the legal test for the testator, that's the person who makes a will, uh, is to think firstly about who um, uh, do they have uh, in their family structure um, that has a legitimate claim to their bounty. That's the expression used in one of the original cases, uh, I think uh, in Singer and Berghaus, um, uh, a beautiful expression. Um, so who has a legitimate claim to their bounty? Not the chocolate bar, it's, it's, um, uh, it, you know, it's the assets that you have. And in this state, in South Australia, and it varies a little bit, but it's always a similar theme nationally, but in South Australia, that's going to be our spouses, our children uh, and children of our children and children of our spouses, provided they were being maintained in whole or part by the testator at the time of the testator's death. So having looked at firstly who uh, do you have that you need to provide for, uh, you then need to think about what do I have to provide, what is the asset structure. Um, you need to know that in order to make a will um, then you need to think about what's the proper provision for me to provide to each of these people for whom I know I must think about. And it's at that point that you can start looking at, at what you've just said, which is this child's not going to be very good with the money and this child doesn't need the money. And at that point, the legal analysis allows fair-minded people to, to go each way on what's right. Um, and it's only when... Uh, a court gets involved after death and after everyone has their fight uh, that we get any sense of an outcome. 
So to some people, it might be fair to say that the child of mine that has no need for anything because they've been really good with saving, they've been really good with investment, they've been so responsible in their life, um, they've married well, their partner is equally um, uh, sophisticated and, and established in life. So some people would say that it's fair for a testator, a mum or a dad, to say, well, that child needs less than my other child who struggled all the way through, was horrible with money, never managed to save anything and has nothing to show for their life so far. So th this is where the fights start. That's where the fights begin. And mm. it's the person who is being overly compensated, they're happy as Larry. Mm. The person who is making the will, well, they're gone. Mm. The person who makes the call is the one that misses out mm. and it's a real... It's, it's a real big decision that they have to make at that point, whether they challenge it or whether they accept it. They do. And, and, and that style of fighting is the simplest of what we see. Um, the most common of what we see actually occurs in blended families. Um, so the most common scenario that causes um, significant conflict and generally destruction of family units is where um, a, a testator um, on their second marriage um, so they have children from their first marriage. They marry someone new. Who's got their own children. Who has their own children. And at that point, they'll either have new children with that partner. So we will have um, a husband and a wife um, who each have their own children from outside of the marriage plus children together. Mm -hmm. um, or probably in our experience more commonly, they don't have children together, but they still have children outside of the marriage each. Mm -hmm. Now in that situation, what what happens, um, I think more often than not, is a lack of proper estate planning. Um, what usually occurs in that situation, in our experience, is that the husband and wife on their second marriage um, will often own their assets in a joint way. Um, so their primary asset will often be their house and their next largest asset will usually be their superannuation. And they will usually um, uh, have really simple wills or sometimes no wills. And it follows that if they have jointly held assets, whether you have a will or not, that remains with the other joint owner. And that's the most common way a house is dealt with um, in, in estate planning. So a husband and a wife will own it jointly, uh, which means they both own 100% of it at the same time as the other person which feels like sharing and it kind of is. But what it means is when the first one drops away or dies, the other one isn't actually inheriting anything because of a will or because of law. They're just keeping what they already had because the two of them both owned the whole thing at the same time. So what happens in this blended family is that the, um, the, the partner number, you know, well, the first of the husband and wife to die dies and the survivor receives by survivorship the house. Superannuation will generally be dealt with pursuant to a binding death benefit nomination, perhaps a reversionary pension, but it'll be dealt with pursuant to the superannuation legislation. Almost certainly that's going to end up with the new spouse. So what we have is a scenario where the first person to die has children from their original and first marriage. Those children are usually adults. Um, their mother or father passes away and everything goes to their stepmother or stepfather. Now, in South Australia, the law says that the children of the first person to die um, cannot um, contest 
in the stepmother or stepfather's estate if they were adults at the time of the stepmother or stepfather's death uh, and if they were not being maintained in whole or part. So what it means is that the children of the first to die get one um, crack at claiming for more provision from the estate and that means they have to tackle their mother or their father's will. But the problem that we see you know, weekly if not daily is that there isn't an estate of the first to die and that's because the house was held jointly so it wasn't dealt with by the will so it just passes by survivorship to the stepmom or dad um, so the children of the first to die can't do anything about that that's lost that's an asset lost to the estate um, and the superannuation if dealt with by a binding death benefit nomination um, is going to go to the um, stepmom or stepdad as well so they even if the children were unhappy um, with getting nothing um, they uh, they really don't have much standing to claim mm. So what estate planning lawyers do to stop that fight before it happens is get involved in the drafting of the documents. Um, the most common sort of approach that, um, uh, that, that good estate planning lawyers would employ in that blended family scenario, uh, at least in my view, is to alter the way the assets are held so that a, a property, a, a house, isn't held as a joint tenancy anymore, but is held as a tenancy in common. And that means instead of having two people owning 100% of the same thing at the same time as each other, so that if one dies, the other just keeps owning 100% of it, what you have is you have them own half of it each at the same time as each other. There's no specific half. Um, it's not. There's no line down the middle. It's just we own half each. And that means that when the first person dies, there is an estate which can be distributed to their children. But that raises the practical problem of, well, so I'm the first to die in this second marriage. Do I want to give my half of the house that my new wife lives in to my children? And the answer is, well, I probably do, but it's very impractical. Um, so the solution that we often employ is what's called a life interest. And what that means is you give your half of your house to your children. So it's locked down, it's secure, and it's as safe as it can be in the circumstances. But for so long as your new partner lives, she can continue to live in the house until she herself dies. Um, a well-drafted life interest will allow the house to be downsized and new ones to be bought and proceeds to be invested and, uh, and perhaps fund a refundable accommodation deposit and the like so we can allow for all the variations of life. Um, but that's the key thing to look at is how are the assets held and is there a better way we could hold them so that when the first person dies, the children of that first person um, aren't locked out completely from ever getting any of their deceased parents' estate. Um, other things that often work, mutual wills contracts. Um, I quite like them. Um, they are a, a, a contract between, in this scenario, the, um, the husband and the wife on their second marriage, um, where they say, I'll make a will and you'll make a will and this is what it'll look like. And after you die, I won't change my will. And, uh, uh, and that's the, um, the other problem that occurs is that a husband and a wife on their second marriage, um, they might do a handshake deal, which says that when the second of us dies, we'll give half to my kids and half to your kids. 
But the reality is um, the, the second to die will often have repartnered and their new partner will also have children. And so they'll change their will or they might just grow apart from the children of their second um, husband or wife. So it, there's a lot of really interesting issues there, which means the discussions we have with our clients are quite elaborate and detailed and uh, all about their family dynamic and things like that. But the key is that we need to look at how are assets held, how does death affect the way those assets are held and the way those assets pass, and is there a way we could alter them while everyone's alive so that hopefully when someone's not alive, we're not dealing with conflict and the destruction of what's left of the family unit. So there's a real lesson there. Um, I guess <clears throat> the partner who's in the new relationship, um, you know, they're trying to keep everyone happy, but there's there's almost like an onus on the children to sit down with the parent mm. Mm. and say, look, you know, we've got this solution to this situation that I've come up with. Are you happy to... Um, get that drafted in a will that protects me and my brothers and sisters mm. um, so that after you're gone, um, we're not going to miss out should circumstances after your death change. And, and, you know, and that's probably a difficult conversation, but I've seen that happen in one family and it actually worked really well. Um, so I think that f for those people who are thinking about that, it, you know, it's a really good idea to, to sit down with that person and, and, and perhaps... Um, without doubt. Without doubt. In fact, um, we know uh, anecdotally of um, uh, the American experience here, which is to convene what are called death parties, which sound quite horrible, but um, they're essentially a dinner party of three generations in, in while they're all alive, and they talk about that. And so they're having open, full and frank discussions about, well, how are we going to deal with, you know, when this person dies, when this person dies, um, and, and, and what will we do? Uh, they don't draft documents at the dinner party or anything, but they're starting the dialogue. And we've always encouraged that in our practice. Um, we often like to meet um, the executors of the wills we draft because they're generally um, spouses and children of our clients. Um, and it's really important that they know, firstly, they're an executor, um, but they'll often be beneficiaries as well. And so it's really important that if there's going to be an issue that it's been talked about before you die mm, mm. so that it can be dealt with. So in that in, in that sort of simplistic example of the parents with the wastrel child and the um, highly um, uh, efficient and conscientious and successful child that doesn't need for anything, if the will is drafted in a way that neither of the children know what it does, well, there's almost a guarantee that someone, if not both of the children, are going to be upset. Mm. Whereas if the will was discussed and shared and talked about um, at the point it was drafted, then I like to think, and we know that it does happen, that there would be conflict then. Mm. And if you have conflict while you're alive, the key point of difference to conflict when you're not alive is that you can speak for yourself. So the conflict that we deal with and uh, attempt to resolve always has a key protagonist who cannot speak for themselves mm. because they've died. Um, so if you were to have that discussion after the will was drafted, the child who wants for nothing might say, well, thanks, mum and dad. Uh, you know, I really appreciate your vote of confidence in my saving and investing capabilities, 
but it feels a bit harsh to me. Um, shouldn't you treat your children equally? Mm. I, I think that there's a there's a there's a real lesson there for everyone. Like, um, you know, most of my friends are lawyers, mm. and I, 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 I I'm always with them. But I think that um, they're used too much in our society. In fact, I think that when there's a dispute, let's just consider a dispute between neighbours. I think that lawyers often get involved too early in the piece and it and it actually fractures the relationship that should be a good relationship between neighbours. And if, if one neighbour can speak to the other and sit down and have a mature conversation, then, you know, it makes the work of the lawyer a lot less and easier. Mm. And it's the same in these family situations. Very much so. So... Uh, the, the, yeah, if, if everyone can sit down and have an honest, frank discussion about what's going to happen and if it's not equal, why isn't it equal? Mm. And if you don't feel that that's fair, put your case forward mm. while everyone's there. The, the head-in-the-sand approach leads to massive disruption, massive arguments, massive legal bills down the track. Mm. And ultimately, that's not really the work that you want to be doing, even though that's you know becoming more and more <clears throat> important. You're much more proactive and like to sit down at the outset and get everyone on board so that when it comes to the estate planning it's more or less straightforward and not confrontational exactly we, we should only be in court if something's gone really wrong um, good estate planning should prevent any competition or conflict um, so that um, uh, these problems are all solved while everyone's alive to to sort them out okay can we change tack please because mm-hmm. um, i want to touch on something that came up when we were having the coffee at the Whistle and Flute. Um, now, often involved in the estate planning, there's a large um, amount that's not allocated to family members, but it's set aside and, you know, it's, I guess the, the, the new phrase that we use now is setting up a foundation. Hmm. And you're involved in that work as well. Mm-hmm. And I want you to tell us the cigarette story. Mm-hmm. about free cigarettes for all diggers. Can you please lead us into that? <laughs> um, I think when we were talking about that, it was in the context of general charitable and uh, philanthropic uh, discussions. Um, so that's a large part of our estate planning practice. It um, And it's perhaps one of those things that when we talk about the perfect storm of conditions leading to growth in estate planning, it's it's one of those extra conditions. Um, so what we have now is, is greater wealth than ever, which means that what we're seeing is an increasing incidence of people having a, a philanthropic intent in their will drafting. Uh, what that means is that within their wills, they can establish all sorts of different structures uh, that are capable of providing for a true philanthropic um, purpose. That might be a charitable trust, whereby a testator uh, gives money uh, to a trustee of the charitable trust uh, to hold for the particular charitable purpose. That might be um, to look after a particular hospital. Uh, in fact, recently I drafted a, uh, um, a a will that provided for a charitable purpose of maintaining various public monuments. Um, they might also, in their will, establish um, a, a private ancillary fund. They might establish a general charitable trust. Um, they might uh, give to a public ancillary fund, and we run a very large public ancillary fund, uh, which is a way of pooling a lot of people's charitable gifts uh, with their own um, uh, sub 
fund and subtrust, um, where the testator impresses that gift with a, a purpose. And that purpose might actually be a specified entity, a specified charity, or it might be just a general purpose. Um, so we didn't used to see as much philanthropy as we do now. Uh, it's a beautiful thing, and we're seeing some significant um, lead players um, nationally. Um, Andrew Forrest comes to mind, um, providing large um, philanthropic gifts, often while they're alive, and, and we assist people do that while they're alive as well um, because it um, um, it's often easier to set up your structures while you're alive and then top them up when you're not alive. So um, often people will establish a charitable trust um, with us and we can often act as a trustee for that or uh, we can just draft it. Um, and, and they might put a little bit into that while they're alive, uh, but after they die, they might top it up with their estate. But the example um, you were talking about um, was, was a, an instance of how far back um, some of the charitable giving um, we, we see and experience goes. Uh, now, I forget the name of the case, but, um, um, but what it shows is how um, philanthropic giving and charitable um, uh, trusts go for so long that the society around which they're made changes. And, and for me, that's the most beautiful part of philanthropic giving is you're establishing what is something that will continue forever. Uh, and as humans, the concept of forever is a bit hard to grasp. Um, you know, imagine um, uh, what our society will look like in 100 years. Um, it's near impossible. Um, but what we've seen are charitable trusts that are um, very old and for whom uh, the society around them has changed. So the example is a bit of a... Um, um, uh, I think it's become as much folklore within the legal profession as anything else, but um, it, it concerns a charitable trust, I think it was established in England, um, where uh, a person uh, donated a large portion of their estate to provide cigarettes. He used language, I think, that these days we wouldn't use, but um, um, but at the time he, he called the cigarettes something else. Facts. Um, yeah, um, to provide to soldiers... Um, who were convalescing in hospital after service. So the interesting thing about that is we don't like the idea of cigarettes at all now and, and we probably doubly dislike them in hospitals. In fact, we don't allow it. We don't even allow them on footpaths near hospitals. So here was a person whose charitable intent um, was to provide some therapeutic benefit, some worthwhile luxury, some uh, possibly a health um, a benefit um, to these soldiers. And of course, we would look at cigarettes very differently now. Um, uh, no one would, would suggest there's any benefit in them. Um, but this testator had done just that. And so what occurred was society changed. Um, the charitable trust continued to live. It continued to have funds. Um, but what was necessary was an application to the court to say, well, what does it mean now? Um, it doesn't seem like a good idea anymore uh, to be giving cigarettes to anyone in hospital or anyone near a hospital, um, and particularly soldiers, or just to anyone generally. Um, so there was a, a, a need for the court to um, intervene. They call them a Cypre application where you seek a, uh, an explanation um, and some guidance um, as to, well, what, what should we do with this now? Um, the outcome, I forget what it was, but um, um, the reason we were talking about it um, that day 
is because it adds to this concept of perpetuity and just the the duration and the length of charitable giving. To me, it's, it's it seems like a beautiful thing that in a will, a testator can leave money for a purpose and then die. And then by the time that testator's grandchildren and great-grandchildren die, that purpose is still being fulfilled, that charitable trust is still giving money to charities every year in the name of that deceased testator. Um, the concept of that is, is to me, quite mind-boggling uh, to think that if I now were to leave perhaps um, you know, um, $200,000 or $100,000 for a particular purpose, that in 100 years' time when we've all finally got the, um, uh, the Michael J. Fox hoverboard, um, that it's still giving that money um, away. I, and that's, that's truly beautiful. And that's something new that we're seeing, but it shows the importance of drafting um, and the need to make sure when we draft these things, we allow for perpetuity and we allow for changes in society. Mm. Now, other question that I've got is um, what happens if someone dies without a will? Mm. Um, so let's speak to South Australia um, uh, only, which is the state that I do most of my work um, within. Um, if you die without a will, the first thing that occurs is the Administration and Probate Act says that um, the the estate, which is the things you have when you die, of an intestate, which is a person who dies without a will, vests in the public trustee until someone obtains a grant of letters of administration. So the main difference is that with a will we get a grant of probate and with without a will we get a grant of letters of administration. So a will sets out... Um, uh, some rules and some guidelines and it, and it lists the cast of characters, if you like. So it says who the executor is and it says where things will go. If you don't have that, you get the default settings within the Administration and Probate Act. And so that sets out who can apply for the grant of letters of administration. So problem number one is you don't get to choose who's going to run the show, who's going to call in the assets, who's going to make the application uh, for the grant of letters of administration. Um, problem number two that follows uh, is that you don't get to choose where the estate goes. Um, there are a, a set of default settings uh, within the Administration and Probate Act. Can I just interrupt for a moment? Does it by default go to next of kin? You could say it does, but it, that's really, really oversimplifying it. Um, and you need to look at the actual family structures that exist for each deceased person to work out where it goes. Okay, I just want to interrupt for a moment because the reason I'm asking this is because of a situation which occurred. Uh, there was a chicken farmer in the Adelaide Hills mm. who had a beautiful little property, stone home, on about 15, 20 acres. He died. He did not have a will. Mm-hmm. His son moved into the house and lived there for five years and then his son died without a will. Mm -hmm. The family bloodline in Australia was non-existent. Mm -hmm. Everyone had passed away. The house became empty. Mm -hmm. The council rates climbed up to $30,000 mm -hmm. and the house went to auction. Mm -hmm. They knew that there were next of kin back in Poland, mm -hmm. but they didn't know who they were and mm. how to find them. Mm. And obviously it's not that easy finding them because everything over in Poland is in mm. another language and they don't have as good of records as we do. Um, so what actually happened was squatters moved in and squatters did a GoFundMe campaign 
and a poker player from Sydney. Mm. Yeah, no, I know the the man. Yeah, and he coughed up the thirty thousand dollars. I think for a half interest in the property. Well, no, because the council were trying to sell the place um, for a non-payment of rates, um, which is an entitlement um, that councils have under the local government act for council rates that are in arrears for more than three years. Okay, so can I just keep going with my part of the story because Mm. I find this fascinating. So. I was doing a bit of research because this is down the road from where I live in the hills. So I was I was fascinated by it. And um, the guy living in there was actually an actor mm. and he was getting quite a media campaign behind him to mm. gain momentum because if he could prove that he'd lived in there, correct me if I'm wrong, for 20 years, then the property was his. Mm. So he was, I think, four or five years into it. And ironically, he used to play, have band practice in the shed on the property <laughs> when he was a kid. So he knew of the background and everything and knew that it might be coming up and a bit of the history so that he felt that he could move in. He got the power connected. He started doing minor renovations. Mm. How, how could he get the power connected? I can't believe that. Mm. Like, mm. There's no documentation whatsoever that he could possibly have and yet they did it. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so then a couple of things happened. Like I was interested in trying to find the family in Poland so I've got some Polish clients <laughs> and he said to me that if I wanted to track down the family tree, because mm. it was sort of like an unusual name um, and I had all the details of the guy who, who whose name was on the title, um, he was going to do a trip to Poland. He offered to go to all the local churches, which is what you do over there, mm. to find out where the families are. They don't have birth, deaths and marriages. <laughs> then I went to birth, deaths and marriages in Adelaide and I had the guy's name, his address. I think I had his date of birth. They wouldn't give the document to me Mm. because I didn't have a genuine need for requesting it and I wasn't next of kin. So then I I did a search of the title of the property and it said public trustee on there. Mm. So I'm thinking now from what you've told me, they appointed themselves to this um, estate Mm. and what there was no will, Mm. I'm assuming. And then I rang them and I said, do you want me to help you find this guy in Poland? And they said, no. Mm. Who are you? Mm. <laughs> be freaked out. They did put me through the person and he did give me some insight into the situation. And then he said, we've found that person yes, and we're about to evict the squatter. Yeah, and I think uh, that was where I last saw it because I only followed it through the newspapers and I remember the beautiful um, advertiser article where the squatter said that um, his goat um, had done um, more work around the property than, um, you know, than, uh, than, than the actual administrator of the estate. The... Um, um, the sequence of events that, that leads to that unfolding are, are, are relatively simple, um, but they become complex by a combination of squatters and the international aspects of trying to find next of kin. But um, if, if your sequence is taken as being right, um, then the estate of the first to die um, will have um, passed necessarily um, to the estate of the second person to die. Right? Um, it's clearly the case that the first estate, um, if your facts are the the correct ones, um, that the first estate was never administered, um, but that um, uh, the second to die was certainly a, if not the only, beneficiary of the first estate. It follows when the second person dies um, that their estate passes in accordance with the Administration and Probate Act. And um, as a rule, it says um, that if you have a spouse and you don't have any children, your spouse gets everything. It gets messy after that, though. So once you have kids, it gets a bit weird. Um, and it's counterintuitive to what every single client I've ever had has thought might be the case. Um, but it provides that if you have a spouse and children, um, that 
if you die without a will, your spouse receives not your entire estate, but the first $100,000 of it, and that thereafter, whatever is left, is divided into two parts. The spouse gets one part, being half, and the remaining half is divided equally among the children of the deceased person. So it becomes quite interesting um, uh, in terms of how that uh, occurs. Um, when we have international matters and um, we move away from having um, children um, that are left alive at the point that people die, uh, we start having to move back up the tree. And, and it's not unusual for estates to vest in um, quite distant relatives. Um, I can recall last year um, having to track down two children um, in, in, uh, in England who didn't know their father uh, had died. They didn't really know their father at all. Um, they, they had become wards of the state and ended up in, a, in the United Kingdom. Um, and we needed to tell them they'd each inherited, I think, in the order of a million dollars each. Um, um, and we had to wait for them to turn 18 to start communicating with them. It was quite interesting. And obviously, if you try and approach someone in a foreign country and tell them, you've just got a million dollars, you're not well received. Um, there's an assumption that it's a scam. Um, so in, in the situation you were talking about with the, uh, the acting um, or the goat farmer actor, um, squatter, uh, in the hills, chicken farmer as well. Um, he was a man of many talents. Um, that um, uh, in that situation, the public trustee gets the, the key role um, because the Administration and Probate Act says that an intestate estate vests in the public trustee until someone gets a grant of administration. Um, the people who can apply for the grant of administration are, um, uh, are set out um, legislatively as well. But if everyone's overseas, no one's going to know um, that you know their second cousin has died in Australia, who they've probably never met, mm. never known, um, and uh, and then retain a lawyer in Australia to obtain a grant for their benefit, their use and benefit, um, uh, so that they can then administer the estate. So. We have, for good reason, a default setting at law, which is that if everything's gone really bad um, and no one's around, then the public trustee gets the gig. Um, so the public trustee's job um, in that situation, and and I've, I've got no involvement in the matter and, and don't know what, what um, uh, they're necessarily doing um, at the moment, but, uh, but what I'd be doing in their position um, is engaging a genealogist um, to um, track the family tree, uh, and the next thing I'd be engaging is a, uh, uh, a private investigator to then track down those people um, in, um, in Poland. Um, and then I'd be writing to them in much the same way as we did with our English um, uh, kids with their million dollars uh, to just say, you know, hey, you might not uh, be aware, but you're the second cousin of this person and you're the lucky um, beneficiary of a particular share or a, or a part or maybe the entirety um, of this estate. Um, so importantly, the people the public trustee needs to be looking for in that scenario uh, are the um, beneficiaries of the second to die. Um, and that's the default setting beneficiaries under the Administration and Probate Act. What's the lesson um, to be learnt from it? Um, what's the moral of the story? Um, it's very clear, have a will. Um, if the first person to die in that scenario had a will, um, they would have appointed an executor and that executor would have controlled the estate and passed the house and, and other assets 
um, to the um, the beneficiary they chose. Um, that person who you're suggesting lived for five years um, after the death of the first should then have made their own will. And in their will they could have appointed anyone uh, to be their executor and they could have given their estate to anyone at all. They could have given their estate to charity. Um, so it's likely that uh, whoever that person was, given they lived in Australia and their um, distant relatives were all in Poland and none of them made any contact with anyone, uh, it's entirely likely that that person had friends within Australia. Perhaps that person would have liked to have given the house um, uh, to their friends. Um, and if so, they should have made a will that appointed their friends uh, as their executor or a professional trustee as their executor and then gave the estate to their friends. Um, it, it wouldn't have made such media coverage. Uh, it wouldn't have been, become as, as awkward of a story as it did. Indeed, it would have just been a normal, routine, run-of-the-mill thing that no one would ever have heard about. Um, so moral of the story, have a will. Everyone should have a will. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for your time today, Ben. We're going to finish it on that note, but uh, that's given us a really great insight into the whole wills and estates part of the um, legal process. I really appreciate your thoughts and comments today, and I'm sure that our listeners have really enjoyed what you've got to say. Thank you. Thanks, Kim.